Great to see you once again. We're closing out our James study today, 15 weeks, verse by verse, on prayer. As James begins to close out his letter, he gives us one last lesson on the power of prayer. Now, to help us do this today, I want to invite a couple of of our prayer leaders to our platform today. I want you to hear from them. It would give it up right now, if you would, for James and Anthony, who lead our prayer ministry at Abundant Life. As uh, we begin talking and teaching about prayer today, I'm so thankful for your leadership in this area as a couple of really gifted, passionate intercessors uh, before the Lord. So I want them to hear a little bit about what's going on with this part of our ministry because prayer really is the source of the power of God. Apart from prayer, there is no power of God. And so uh, James, if you would, tell us what is the heart behind uh, the Abundant Life Prayer Ministry? The heart behind a pastor is, uh, for me, it comes from spending time as an intern uh, last year and learning the ins and outs of Abundant Life and seeing the need on part of our leaders to pray for them, but also uh, the intercessory ministry that God has called us to, to pray for one another. And that's really the heart behind why we do what we do on Wednesday nights. Mm -hmm. That's good. So um, tell us... For those of us out here that may feel a little bit inadequate with prayer, because a lot of us feel like, you know, prayer, I know I'm supposed to, but I'm not very good at it. I don't feel like I do enough of it. Uh, what are some things that we could begin doing immediately that would maybe start to enhance our prayer life personally? I think that one of the things we can do is uh, make prayer more personable. And by doing that, sometimes we go on prayer, you know, it's kind of ongoing. We hit it and we miss it. But I think when we begin to discipline ourselves and begin to really allow prayer to be the, the final thing in our lives, it, it, it's an impact. It impacts things. It impacts lives and changes in our lives. So we just want to make, and, and time, you know, we don't have all this time we think we have. So what we may want to do is begin to carve out some time in our daily schedule to make sure that we're giving God that time for prayer. And trust me, it'll make a difference in your lives. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, the other thing was uh, we often ask people to pray for us. And one of the ways that we can grow in our prayer life is to begin to ask other people just one simple question. That question is, how can I pray for you? To ask someone specifically about something uh, in their lives that they'd be willing to share that we can pray for them to bring us out of just asking for ourselves, but then asking other people and then praying on their behalf. Good. So uh, a lot of people wonder, does prayer really change anything? You know what I'm saying? Like, is there really any point, or is God just going to do what he's going to do? Does it really change anything? So tell us a little bit about what's going on with an Abundant Life prayer ministry. What are some things that have changed? Any lives that have changed? Or what what have you seen in terms of uh, what God does? Pastor, there wouldn't be enough time to tell about all the things that we've seen happen in our time uh, leading the ministry and how the the lives have changed. But one story that I particularly, uh, that comes to mind is uh, Jennifer and uh, Jeff Stone, who are members of our church for 10 years now. And one of the challenges that they had is in his job, he got a new supervisor. And uh, she was not very pleased with him and not very, just wasn't nice to him. And so uh, it caused a lot of stress on his part. It caused a lot of anxiety and sleepless nights and not being at his best when he was at work. So Jennifer would come to Wednesday night prayer meeting and tell us what was going on and ask us to pray specifically for Jeff and what he was going through. And the Lord opened up an opportunity in the same company that he's been with for 16 and a half years to move over to another position in the company. Now that was the praise that he didn't have to deal with that supervisor anymore, but then God added some, what we would call the cherry on top, because Jeff in the new area that he was in was able to start a Bible study on his job. Exciting, yeah. So if you don't like your boss, We know what to do now. (laughs) Um, Well, Anthony, tell us, um, what would would it be like to get involved in abundant prayer? Where does it meet? When does it meet? How do we get involved more? Well, we meet uh, every Wednesday over at the core, uh, the lower level room, C004, from 630 to 8. Uh, we have a lot of things that goes on too there. So please come on over. We, we love to have you to fellowship with us. Uh, we have testimonies. Uh, leaders are coming and sharing about their ministries and leaving prayer requests. And I tell you, you, you won't be disappointed. You really won't. But again, at the core, every Wednesday at 630 to 8 p.m., uh, lower level room, C004. 
Fantastic, guys. Give it up for them, would you? I'm so thankful for Anthony and James, your leadership in our church. Thanks so much for leading this movement. That's what we need. We need a prayer movement next Sunday night at 6.30 right here. We're coming together with two other churches in town to pray and praise the living God. And so when the body of Christ begins to move in praise and the body of Christ begins to move in prayer, I promise it moves the heart of God. And so uh, next Sunday night at 6.30 right here, uh, we're going to be partnering with two other churches of like faith, the body of Christ moving in unity. I'm promising you, God moves uh, deeply. And so that's next Sunday night. Wednesday nights, every single week, uh, is a chance to move together in unity and prayer. And guys, I'm telling you this, little prayer means little power. Much prayer means much power. If you want the power of God in your life, this is what it looks like. And uh, for all of our strategic planning, I'm, I'm, I, we remind our staff of this sometimes. We plan and uh, we prepare and we program, but apart from God's presence and power, all the planning and all the programming is for nothing if we exist to see lives changed by Jesus, right? And so uh, there's a promise in Jeremiah 33 and verse 3 that I've thought about many times through the years. God says, call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. How many of you want to see God do great things in your life? Yes? I mean, I do. Some of us aren't sure. I know. So, so, so I'm, just, I'm just not sure if you're sure. Let me, how many of us want to see God do mighty things in our life? Yes? I mean, I really do. I don't want to live a normal life. I don't want to live an average life. The last portion of this series through James we called better than average, better than 2.5. You know why? Because you can live above average. You don't have to live a normal life. The normal mediocrity and complacency of modern Christianity. You can live a life that is mighty. I don't want to live a natural life. I want to live in the supernatural, yes? Uh, we serve a supernatural God that still does supernatural things. And so I don't want to live an ordinary life. I want to live an extraordinary life. What he says is a life that is great and mighty because we serve a great and mighty God. Now, this is what I'm trying to tell you today. If you don't move in prayer, you can't move in God's presence, which means you won't live in God's power. And for many of us, this is the missing ingredient in our life spiritually. And so James begins to sign off this letter with one last lesson, one last thing. He tells us four times we need to pray. We learn to pray persistently and consistently. The Apostle Paul said without ceasing, but specifically in four seasons of our life. First of all, he says, we should pray in times of suffering. We should pray in times of suffering. He picks it up right here where we left off a week ago in James 5.13. He says, if any among you are suffering, let him pray. Let me ask you, as we talked about trials and tribulations a week ago, when you go through a time of suffering or pain, what is your first response? Do you panic or do you pray? Because most of us panic and then panic some more and then panic some more and after we panic, we finally pray. Here's what James is trying to say. Don't panic, just pray. Because when you pray, you find you don't have to panic. And this is why he's reminding us of the first response. Don't ever say this in my presence. I've heard this so many times growing up in church. And, uh, you know, I'd go to the prayer meeting on a Wednesday night and growing up in church, and you hear somebody say, after somebody shared this great, horrible time of suffering or tribulation, I have a prayer request, and, well, I guess all we can do is pray. <laughs> you know, we've tried everything else. I guess all that's left is prayer. It's like, here we are, these Christian victims, and we're all just victims, and all we can do is pray. No, that's not all we can do, but that is the main thing we should do. See, it's not the last resort, it should be the first resort. It's not the only thing to do, but it is always the main thing to do because you reach points in your life that there's nothing left for you to do and it's only now what God can do. And as you begin to lean into prayer, all of a sudden you begin to see heaven move things that you can't move and hell begins to back up too. And that's why he says to begin to pray. Now listen, a lot of people think, listen, I used to wonder, honestly, uh, does prayer really matter? Does prayer change anything? Because a lot of us have had this faulty theology, this false view of God that says God's kind of predestined everything anyway, and whatever God's going to do, God's going to do. And so it doesn't really matter if you pray, because God's already made his mind up, and it really doesn't matter, because God's going to do what God's going to do. And I'm just telling you, that is absolutely not true. That's a really bad theology. 
And sometimes we've been taught, you know, God's foreknowledge and God's predestination. And these are concepts and character qualities of God the New Testament teaches. And we sometimes interchange them and use them synonymously, and they're not the same thing. In other words, God foreknows everything, but he has not predestined everything. There's some things God has predestined, even though he foreknows everything, he hasn't predestined everything. His foreknowledge simply has to do with his omniscience, meaning he's all-knowing. He's never been taken by surprise by anything. Nothing's ever happened. He went, ooh, <laughs> I didn't know that was gonna happen. what I do next? See, his foreknowledge simply says he foreknows everything that's gonna happen before it happens, but he has not predestined everything that's gonna happen before it happens. And within God's sovereignty, we sometimes have this false view of God's sovereign plan for my life, and we see God's sovereign plan of our life being this little bitty, itty bitty, two-lane little path that I can't get this way or this way, or I'm no longer in God's sovereign plan. That's just not true. Within God's sovereign plan for your life, check it out, sometimes it's multiple choice. He's got A, he's got B, he's got C, he's got D, and it's conditional entirely on you. Because he's given all of his creatures a free will to choose. So sometimes he says behind door A is this, and behind door B is this. I want you to see predestination is not the same as foreknowledge. We can see this in the life of Hezekiah. 2 Kings chapter 20, don't have time to go there. 2 Kings chapter 20. King Hezekiah, unlike many of the kings of Judah, was a godly king. He gets to the end of his life, the end of his reign, and Isaiah, the man of God, is told by God to go give him the word of God, and he told Hezekiah, thus God says, Hezekiah, this day you're going to die. Get your house in order, because you're got to die. And guess what it says in 2 Kings 20? Hezekiah began to pray. And as he began to pray and petition God, Isaiah's already walked away. God tells Isaiah, go back in and tell King Hezekiah, he's not going to die today. I'm going to give him 15 more years. See, God had not predestined when he was going to die. God gave him A and God gave him B. Now, let me ask you, you think God was confused? Oops, got that wrong, Isaiah. No, he, he wasn't wrong about anything. God told him the truth. You're going to die get your house in order, but because Hezekiah began to pray, God heard his prayer, and instead of choosing plan A, God went with plan B. That's God's sovereignty, and I want you to see it's conditional often on you and me. And there's gonna come a day, we're gonna get to heaven, honestly, and I think we're gonna have this infinite then understanding in some way as we look back at our life at the judgment seat of Christ, and I'm convinced many of us will begin to realize all that could have been, all that should have been, all that might have been, only had we began to pray. But because we never prayed, we got to live in this plan instead of this plan, when all along God really wanted us to live in this plan. You can begin to see why God says pray, because prayer changes things. I want you to see, in times of suffering, you don't have to panic, begin to pray. This is what it says. You have a heavenly Father who desires to carry your burdens in times of suffering. Did you know God cares? You got a heavenly Father that wants to carry this junk with you. He hasn't left you by yourself to try to figure it out by yourself and carry it all by yourself. You've got a heavenly father that wants to carry you through this. Now it may feel like in the times of intense suffering that God's not there, he's not really, he doesn't really care and I have to carry this all by myself. We're gonna get to heaven someday, I guarantee, and we're gonna realize then that God carried me. Because if God didn't carry me through that, I would have collapsed. And this is what we learn. The Apostle Peter said, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. And life is full of suffering, and life is full of trials, because we live in a broken creation that is cursed because of sin. That means Romans 8 tells us that all of creation groans and travails under the curse of sin. Why is there suffering? Because there is sin. Where there is no sin, there is no suffering. But we currently live in a world of sin, which means there's lots and lots of suffering. What does God want us to do? Casting all our cares upon him, for he cares for you. 
And what is God trying to do in those moments as we begin to pray? We begin to realize we've got a lot more in our relationship than simply this faraway God that doesn't really care, that's just barely there. He wants to be a father to you. He wants to in some way be your daddy spiritually. Look at what he says in Romans chapter eight. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Here's what God is teaching us. As a child of God, you've been born into God's family. Jesus said twice you must be born again. And when you put your faith in him, you're born again then spiritually as God's child. But not only are you born into his family, you're adopted into his family. Do you realize that apart from Jesus, in your sin, there's enmity and hostility. You are God's enemy because he's holy. But did you know that when you put your faith in the Son of God, you're born again as a child of God, then you're adopted into his family, which means you have a new father. And a lot of people see God as just this distant God that you can't really draw near to. That's not at all what he's teaching here. Listen, he says, call me Abba, Father. Abba is an Aramaic term. And it was a term of endearment. It implied a personal relationship. Yes, Jesus said, my father who art in heaven in the Lord's prayer, but he wants to be more than your father. In my family, uh, I have three children. I am their father. But let's be honest, father seems a little stuffy. You know, father just sounds a little too serious. Father is just a little too formal. So uh, in, in our family, my children have never called me father unless they're just playing around. Father. You know, every once in a while we binge a little bit on Star Wars and, you know, I am your father. That kind of thing, right? But typically that's not how we address. That's not how we talk to each other. So, you know, they have personal names for their dad as my children. And they get to say it. You know why? Because they're my kids. So, you know, once in a while I'm Daddy-O, right? Or, you know, Jake will text me from Arkansas and sometimes, you know, it's Big Daddy or Big Papa, That's what you do when you're close to your father. You get to do that. It's usually sometimes when he wants money. Hey, big papa. It's like, no, I'm not your sugar daddy. I'm your daddy, but not your sugar daddy, okay? (laughs) Uh, My dad is almost 79 years of age. Guess what? To this day, he's a grandfather. He's a great-grandfather. I still call him daddy. At my age, he's still my daddy. He'll always be my daddy. It implies a relationship, doesn't it? You see, that's what God's trying to teach us. He wants that kind of relationship with us. He's a God that always cares. He's a God that's always there. Years ago, you have these moments when your children are growing up. They're just kind of these snapshot moments. You never forget them. And uh, it was kind of a mild winter day. Kids had cabin fever. We got out of the house, and we said, we're just going to go for a walk. We're going for a walk in the woods this day. Kind of a mild winter day, good to get out of the house, get the kids out of the house. Well, Josh, at the time, he's now 20, he was maybe six, maybe seven years at the most. He's falling behind me in the woods, and of course, uh, you know, I'm moving a lot faster than he is, and I get ahead of him, realize he's kind of a long ways behind me. I stop to let him catch up, and then I realize he's lost. He can't see me. So I decide just to watch him, see what happens. And uh, it didn't take him about three, four more steps to realize he's lost. He can't see dad anymore. And you see the little panicky you know, face starts to set in. And all of a sudden he says, Daddy! Daddy! Yep, that's it. You hear it? <laughs> now, what father could resist when they hear that voice? Daddy! I couldn't resist. I mean, game was over from that moment before. I was like, I, you know, I'm here, son. Here I am. I went here, here's the point. There are times in suffering where you feel lost. You feel like you can't see God. It doesn't make sense. Guess what? When you can't see God, God can always see you. And when you can't see God and you can't see him, he's still watching you. He's still watching over you. I will promise you, Josh was not in danger. He was never in danger. Because his dad was there. His, his dad was watching over him every step he was making. And I'm trying to tell you, there are times you can't see God in the middle of the mess. But God can still see you. And he's trying to teach you in those moments to walk by faith. Five times the Bible says, the just shall live by faith. Now we want to walk by sight. 
And that's when life always makes sense. We can walk by sight, but there are times it doesn't make sense. And in those times we can't walk by sight. He's trying to teach us how to walk by faith. And I'm telling you in my own life, when I start to have lots of anxiety, guys, and I'm no different than anybody else here, I got my own set of fears, my own sense and seasons of anxiety. Right? I no longer have that profound sense of, you know, God's all over my life and he's all over this. And, and I'm, I mean, you know, how's this going to turn out and what's going to be the outcome? I'm just telling you, in my life personally, when I start to live with that sense of anxiety and that pit in your stomach, in most of the cases, I'm telling you, most of the times, because I have not spent quality time in the presence of the Father. When I've spent quality time, genuine time in the presence of God in prayer, it doesn't matter what's happening. I live confidently. I don't live in anxiety most of the time when it feels like, you know, I am in a place of uncertainty. And yeah, you start having that sense of insecurity and anxiety is because honestly, you haven't spent time in prayer. You haven't spent time with God. Because prayer is how you spend time with God. Prayer and praise is how you spend time with the Father. And this is why the Apostle Paul wrote these words to the Philippians. He says, be anxious for nothing. Do you hear it? Be anxious for nothing. He's saying, chill out. God's got this. Chill out. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication. Supplication is making a request with urgency and fervency. With prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. That's a key component. Hey, it is easy to forget how much you have to be thankful for in times of pain and suffering, isn't it? And sometimes the way you come out of that anxiety, quite frankly, the way you come out of that depression or that darkness or whatever it is in your life is just to begin to list the things you got to be thankful about because everything good in your life is because of God your Father. You didn't get that job all by yourself. Uh, you didn't make that money all because you're that smart. Uh, God gave you the ability to get that promotion. He gave you the ability to go on that vacation. He's saying in prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Do you realize as a child of God, you now have peace with God? Before you came to Jesus, you didn't have peace with God. The Bible teaches you were the enemy of God because God is holy and you're not. Because God is holy, it demands sin's penalty. That means you were God's enemy. You were not a part of God's family. There was hostility between you, this wall of division because of sin. Now watch this. When you came to God and you put your faith in the Son of God, Jesus set you free from sin's penalty by the blood of Calvary. That's why Romans 5 and verse 1, it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. On the cross of Calvary, Jesus made our peace with God. He is our peace offering. But do you realize there's a whole lot of Christians that have peace with God. They just have never had the peace of God. You see the difference? Jesus doesn't just secure your peace with God. He is the peace of God. He wants you to live in the peace of God, not just having the peace with God, and this is what he's trying to say here, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. What's that mean? It means in the worst time of suffering, in the middle of that storm, when you're in the eye of that storm, when you ought to be panicking, you're at peace. When it doesn't make sense that you're not falling apart because it feels like my life is falling apart, but I'm not falling apart, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. He says, first of all, when you're suffering. He says, number two, in times of success. In other words, don't just treat God like he's the cosmic tow truck driver. And that's how a lot of people treat God, like they get stuck in a mess and so I'm going to dial a 911 call to God, like he's the cosmic tow truck driver, and God, I'm stuck. Will you come back? Uh, will you come pull me out? <laughs> that's how a lot of people, they only pray when they're stuck. And God says, no, don't, don't just pray in the difficult times. Pray in the really good times. Pray when you've got that promotion. Uh, pray, uh, you know, when all of a sudden you, you finished your education that you thought would never happen. Pray, you know, when you're going through that time of, uh, of uh, profound uh, joy. You're living in the spot where the glory comes out and everything's going good for you. Hey, pray in those times too. Look what he says at the end of verse 13. He says, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. 
Now, what is a psalm? King David wrote most of the psalms in your Bible. The psalms is the largest book in your Bible. Do you realize the psalms were prayers that David had put to music, prayers that are now sung? You see, a psalm is a prayer that was sung, and often it was a song of thanksgiving. And that's why so many of the Psalms has to do with thanksgiving. Psalm chapter 95 and verse two, let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with Psalms. How do you come in God's presence? I'll tell you how you come in God's presence. Thanksgiving, God thank you. You start thanking God for all the reasons you have to be thankful. And you start forgetting all the reasons maybe you don't have to be thankful. And you come in his presence with these psalms of thanksgiving. Now, listen carefully. I'm going to let you off the hook, all right? You don't have to sing your psalm of thanksgiving. Some of you are relieved, and God might be too. Okay. Now, if you want to sing it, you can. I just think God's okay if you don't sing it. If you just say it, it's okay. But the point is he wants us to say why we're thankful. We pray, not just in the difficult times, but in the good times. God, thank you for your blessing upon my life. Thank you for your grace upon my life. Thank you for your provision upon my life. I pray that all the time. God, thank you that you are provider. Give us this day our daily bread. God, you keep giving me my daily bread. You don't always give me more than I need, but you always give me what I need. Thank you. See, that is a prayer of thanksgiving. That is a psalm that if you want to sing it, you can. Go for it. Uh, But at least say it. Begin to pray it. Now, uh, there's a third time. We should pray in times of sickness. James says, pray in times of sickness. Now, look at what he says in verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick. And the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, honestly, I could preach a whole sermon just on these two verses. I mean, there is so much going on here. And I would if I could, but we'd be in James come Christmas. And I guarantee you guys want to do Christmas when it's Christmas and not do James, so I'm gonna have to be done with this thing. But listen carefully, there's so much packed, so much power in these two verses. I wanna point out several things. First of all, I want you to notice something. James is clearly equating some sickness with sin. Did you know that sin in your life, spiritually, will make you eventually unhealthy physically? That's what James is teaching. Now what amazes me is 2,000 years ago when James wrote that, he could not have known scientifically and medically what we know today. Did you know that today there is science, there is medical science that tells us specifically that sin makes us sick. There's no way James could have known it. Don't you love it when science catches up to the Bible? Because what we now know through medical science is that when we live in sin again and again and again and again, year in and year out, year in and year out, we live in sin. Do you realize that sin gives toxins out to the body? It releases chemicals. The brain releases chemicals. That, that unclear conscience, when you don't have a clear conscience, the stress of sin begins to take its toll within. That's what James is saying. Now, that doesn't mean every time somebody gets sick and goes in the hospital, we should be going, wow, I wonder what their sin was. (laughs) All right, don't do that, because it may or may not be. There's a good chance it's not. And by the way, you're going to get sick sometime too, okay? So, just do unto others as you would have them do unto you, yes? But clearly, James is saying it ought to be cause for introspection. Like, is there any sin in my life that might be the real source behind this? And then what does he say? When you you have a time of sickness, let him call for the elders of the church, let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, the oil is nothing magical or mystical about it, all right? A lot of people think this is kind of weird, this kind of hokey, like anointing me with oil. What is that? It's not a magic potion. Oil in the Bible is simply a picture of the Holy Spirit, to symbol of the Holy Spirit. So we cannot fathom what happens in the spiritual realm is we simply obey God in the physical realm. But in some way, as we anoint someone who's sick with oil, we're saying, God, we believe, and by faith, we're obeying what you said, and this 
This oil represents the work of the Holy Spirit in their life, and we believe the Holy Spirit can bring healing in their life. Now, we do this, and we practice this as a church, and on occasion, somebody will say, hey, can I come and let the pastors pray over me and uh, anoint me with oil, and the answer is yes, but I want you to see something. James isn't saying exclusively it has to be elders. He's not teaching exclusively it has to be pastors. Anyone can do this in the body of Christ. Oh, what's he say here? He says, and the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Now listen carefully. This is kind of a controversial area within the body of Christ. Theologically, some of us may have been raised in a religious system where it may not be said out loud, it may not be actually spoken, but you know, we kind of have these attitudes sometimes that you know, Jesus, he healed people back then, but he doesn't really do that today. He, he no longer works that way. So we don't really believe God still heals people miraculously, do we? But I want you to understand something. 150 times the New Testament makes mention of the miraculous power of God to heal. And I don't see anywhere in the New Testament where God says, I no longer do that. What I see in the New Testament is God saying we ought to pray for that. Now, it's really confusing. There's a lot of bad teaching that goes on in this area. Understand, there is no spiritual gift of healing today. Nobody has the gift of healing. Can I tell you why? 2 Corinthians 12, 12 tells us that one of the signs of a true apostle, the way God told the counterfeit apostles in the early days from the true apostles is that the true apostles, according to 2 Corinthians 12, 12, could do signs and wonders, the ability to do miracles. Now, what are the qualifications to have been an apostle? Acts chapter one tells us exactly. You had to have been with Christ physically, literally seen him, walk with him, talk with him from the moment of his baptism up through his resurrection and clear to his ascension. You had to be an eyewitness. If you were not an eyewitness, you were not qualified to be an apostle. And so God told the true apostles for all the false apostles by giving them the ability to do miracles, healing. So, when somebody tells me I have the gift of healing, I'm just telling you, you've lost credibility right away with Pastor Phil. <laughs> Not that I don't like you, I'm just saying, you either biblically, I mean, you can't do basic Bible study, or you're a wolf in sheep's clothing. One of the two. Because there's no gift of healing today, because there's no living apostle today. You may be old, but you ain't that old. <laughs> okay? You may have seen Jesus in another way. You, haven't, you didn't walk with Jesus when he was here 2,000 years ago. But having said that, listen, what is James teaching? While there's no gift of healing today, any member of the body of Christ can pray for healing. And God hears your prayer, and God still heals. We've seen it in our church. I've seen it personally in my family on more than one occasion. Medically speaking, there is no answer. I call that a miracle. We've seen it in our church. There are people here today in this service, people in the last service, that are still alive today, that medically speaking should have been dead long, long ago. They were told by their doctors, get your house in order. And years later, they're still here. And that can't be explained medically, that's only explained miraculously. In my own life personally, my mother went into the hospital a little over three years ago this past summer. Her body was septic, she was dying, she went into a coma, they put her on a ventilator. They could not get her off the ventilator. Every time they tried to get her off the ventilator, she would begin dying. She couldn't breathe. They put her back on the ventilator. We were having those end-of-life conversations as a family. We made the decision, we're going to let them take off the ventilator, and we're going to let God decide, live or die. Well, to everybody's amazement, she lived. I had prayed, you say why? I had prayed, as I know others in my family had too, that God would spare her life, extend her years. I had personally prayed, God, would you give me one more conversation with my mother? She'd gone to coma, didn't get a chance to talk to her, say goodbye to her, God, would you give me one more conversation with my mother? And not only did God give me one more conversation, God gave me two and a half more years with my mother. Multiple conversations with my mom. 
not only gave me one more conversation, gave us two more Christmases, two more Thanksgivings, gave us uh, multiple weddings in our family, birthday parties, before God took her to heaven. Now, you may say, well, that's just coincidental. Now, you know what her doctor told her? Her doctor told her, Judy, do you realize you're in the one percentile? Meaning 99% odd statistically you should have died. Now, when a doctor tells you that, that is a doctor's way of saying you're a miracle. I mean, I'm a scientist, so I can't tell you you're a miracle, but that's a miracle. And we've seen that happen over and over again. Here's what I think we ought to do. I think we ought to pray audacious prayers. I think we ought to pray ginormous prayers, scary prayers. And, and we ought to pray the way Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember what he did? Three times he said, Father, let this cup pass from me. Three times, Father, let this cup pass from me. Three times, Father, let this cup pass from me. But then he said, even so, not my will, but your will be done. See, that's how we ought to pray. We ought to make the big ask. I mean, medically, when everything says this person has no chance, it's hopeless. We need to pray in faith and make the big ask, God, for your name and for your fame, would you heal them completely, cleanse them totally? But if not, your will be done. And that's how we ought to pray. And I'm just saying, if we prayed more often believing, we would see God more often do things unexplainable. You don't get the unexplainable until you pray for the improbable. And then he says these words. He says, listen, we should pray in times of sin. We should pray in times of suffering. We should pray in times of success. We should pray in times of sickness. And most importantly, we should pray in times of sin. Now listen, the most important prayer you will ever make is when you're in sin. 1 John 1, 9 is your prayer. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The most important prayer you will ever make is when you realize you're in sin and sin brings separation between God and men. But when you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But this is not the type of confession that James is talking about in this lesson. No, that's important, that's essential. But there's another type of confession that James is talking about here. Watch this, understand something. Confession before God brings forgiveness of our sin while confession before others brings freedom from our sin. And do you realize that there's a lot of us that have been forgiven of our sin but we've never been set free from our sin? And James is about to tell us how to be set free even once we've been forgiven. All right, look at what he says in the very next verse, James 5, 16. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effect of fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. James is clearly talking about the need for biblical community. One of our core values as a church is community, that no one lives in anonymity. If you come and go from church in relative anonymity, you cannot grow spiritually. I promise you will plateau if you try to fly solo. October's our Group Connect month. We just connected over 200 of you into a small group. We want you to find a family, what the Bible calls true community. And what James is talking about here is that you can be forgiven of your sin when you confess it to him, but you can't be healed from your sin until you get honest with other men. I can tell you in my own life, if you happen to read the book that I authored this year and we went through the study several months ago, Defeating the Enemy, in my own life, listen, I have lived this. I know what I'm talking about. I knew I had been forgiven, but I still needed to be healed. I didn't know that. For years and years and years. You remember what Isaiah said, by his stripes we are healed. That's something altogether different than being forgiven. I needed to be healed. I wasn't healed. And here's the reality James is teaching. It's in the community of other believers that you find healing from your sin even once you've been forgiven of your sin. Now, what does he say here? He says the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. That means don't just tell it to anybody. The effect of fervent prayer of a righteous man or a righteous woman 
But in community, where you're fostering relational security and safety, where you've got an inner circle of two or three people, listen, we cannot win if we try to go solo. What does this mean? It means when I get honest with a group of men in my life, or you get honest with a group of women in your life, and you're honest enough to say, guys, I need your prayer because I am struggling really bad with this particular sin. I am struggling with this temptation. All of a sudden, transparency redeems you from that captivity. See, Satan leverages sin against you even once that sin has been forgiven. He's the accuser of the brethren, it says in Revelation 12, that accuses us before God day and night. And that accusation, even once we're forgiven, has become our prison. How many of you ever thought, well, if they really knew everything about me, they wouldn't like me? Well, if they really knew everything I've done, they wouldn't accept me. It's a lie. And it's in the community of believers that we find healing. See, we're called the body of Christ for a reason. We are his body. That's more than allegory. Literally, Christ lives in us. It's one thing to know somebody you've never seen loves you. Jesus. But when you look at somebody else in the eyes and they look at you in your eyes and you've confessed that thing you thought you would never tell anybody and they love you anyway, all of a sudden they become Jesus, haven't they? And all of a sudden you can start to feel it where before you knew it theologically, you knew it intellectually. Yes, I've been forgiven. I know God doesn't hold anything against me and I'm innocent of sin. But you've never felt it, have you? The reason you never felt it is because you've tried to go solo, confessing it to him. Amen. Yeah, you're forgiven. The question is, do you want to be free? And so I'm just encouraging you, take a risk, take a step. Can't do this just anywhere with just anybody. The effect of fervent prayer of a righteous man, somebody who's walking with Jesus, is not going to judge you. Let me tell you, people that judge others in the body of Christ, the reason they're judging you is because they're afraid that you might find out about them. See, people have been forgiven for the most, judge the least. And when you've got people in your life that you know they're not going to judge you, they're not going to condemn you, they're going to pray for you, they're going to pray with you, all of a sudden you've got people praying with you. And here's the point, guys. There is value in the volume of prayer. Let me say that again. There is value in the volume of prayer. In other words, the power of our prayers are multiplied when we pray together in unity with others. It's synergy, that multiplied energy within biblical community. When we are praying in unison, in unity, what we're going to do next Sunday night 6.30 right here as we come together with other churches in our city to do together what none of us could do apart. And the body of Christ moves together. We move in unity. And we praise God together for his glory. We're going to pray for revival in our city. I'm telling you, what God wants to do corporately, he wants to do for you individually, for your little community of four or five families. And some people wonder, can I really pray powerful prayers? I've had people ask, well, Pastor Phil, will you pray for me because I know your prayers hit heaven before mine do? Or Pastor Phil, will you pray for me because I know you're a little closer to Jesus than I am. And the answer is, I will pray for you. I love to pray for you. I do pray for you. God puts your beautiful little face in my mind's eye every week in some way, and I pray for you. I see your face. And for whatever reason, I'm picturing you, and all of a sudden, I'm praying for you, because I was saying it's God's way of saying you need to pray for them. I pray for lots of you, and I'll pray for you, but listen carefully. My prayers are no more powerful than yours can be, too. Do you understand that anyone who knows Jesus as the resurrected Son of God can pray with a supernatural power of God? Let me say that one more time. Anyone... Anyone who knows Jesus as the resurrected Son of God can pray with the supernatural power of God. Anyone as a child of God, having put their faith in the Son of God, is now indwelt by the Spirit of God. That means you can live and walk in the power of God. Anyone. 
And James knew that we'd be thinking, well, I'm not spiritual enough. I mean, that's only for the really spiritual people, you know, the professionals, the preachers, the pastor fills, right? Look at what he says. He says these words, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Understand, Elijah was the most powerful prophet in Israel's history. Elijah, the most famous prophet of Israel's history. He says, Elijah, this same guy that prayed fire down from heaven, this same man that faced down the 450 prophets of Baal, this is the same man that prayed it would not rain for three and a half years as God's curse upon the land. And then he prayed again, and it began to rain. This same man that did miracles, he says, listen, that guy is no different than this guy who's no different than this guy. He had a nature like all of us, meaning he was just a man. And what he's trying to say is anyone who knows God can pray in the power of God. And a lot of people think, well, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to pray. Listen, God's not impressed by your flowery, theological-sounding prayers. He just wants to have a conversation. Everybody has one of these. You understand, this has changed everything, hasn't it? I mean, the world is like rigged against anyone that doesn't have one of these. Now there's an upside, there's a downside. The upside is, uh, I've embraced this thing called texting. Yeah, and it took me a long time to get there, like I was forever in the making. Somebody actually texted me several years back and I never got back to them in the text. I had no idea I had text. A phone is to talk on, not text. Or so I thought. And uh, so, so I looked at my phone, I found the little icon for texting, guess what, I had like 250 texts <laughs> I'd never returned. But I don't do that anymore, you know why? Because I, I like texting, and the reason I like texting is it's just having now, you get a chance to have this just ongoing conversation, don't you? And you don't have to take time for an old phone call, you just have this ongoing dialogue, yes? And uh, so, for example, my wife, will text me through the day. Might not have time for a whole conversation, but uh, we, we both discovered these little emojis at about the same time. <laughs> and, uh, whoa, there she is. So uh, she, uh, she sent me, she sent me, um, she sent me this last week. <laughs> yeah, I didn't say a thing, but I knew what it meant. You know what, with God, you're going to develop your own language. Ah, that's really her. I don't know where she is right now, but. And uh, so uh, this is my go-to. There's my go-to, okay. Yeah. You kind of develop that, this ongoing conversation. That's what Paul meant. He said, pray without ceasing. Yes, you need a specific time every day to spend with the Father every day, yes. But it doesn't end there. It still only begins there. And it's just having this ongoing dialogue, this ongoing conversation then with the Father. Uh, for example, Lord. I love talk to text, by the way, don't you? Dear God, would you please help the Jayhawks win? <laughs> Question mark. Because it will take a move of God, of biblical proportions, for them to win. What will God say? Seriously? Apparently even that is too hard for God, okay. Some of us need wisdom. We're in a situation. Uh, we need a lot of wisdom. Financial situation, marriage situation, work situation. Dear God, please give me wisdom. Back up, back up, back up. <laughs> I think God would know the difference, but just in case. How many of you know that autocorrect is straight out of the pit of hell? <laughs> yeah. 
Somebody once texted me, Pastor Phil, I've been enjoying the sermons. I responded without reading it before I hit send. What I thought was I would say, I'm glad you've been enjoying the sermons. What I actually sent was, I'm glad you've been enjoying the demons. <laughs> Dear God, please give me wisdom. What will God say? Instantly, oh, James 1.5, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally without reproach, and it will be given to him. Hey, do you realize prayer is how you talk to God, but the Bible is how God talks to you? So you can't find the will of God if you haven't been spending time in the Word of God. And often, God will give you instantly, I mean, an instant message. James 1.5, of course, there's the promise of God. He's promised to give me wisdom for any situation. I'll know what to do. But there are other times God doesn't answer instantly, does he? You ever notice little dots when you text? The little dots that say they've received it, but they haven't yet responded to it? Do you ever start to feel a little apprehension, a little tension when you're having a really serious texting conversation and you can see the little dots like they're thinking? Some of us are praying these kind of prayers that quite frankly, there is no book, chapter, and verse that we can turn to. Dear God, please give me a baby. I'd love a family. Dear God, please give me a spouse. Abundant Life is having that singles conference, and honestly, I don't want to go to it. <laughs> Dear God, please heal me from this cancer. We send these to our Lord and our Savior, instead of getting that instant response, all we see is the dots, dot, 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 dot. And we wonder where God is. I know we received it, but he hasn't responded to it. Sometimes, honestly, we can live for weeks, months, even years with the little dots, and that's all we get. You know what God's trying to do in those moments? Listen carefully. Second Corinthians chapter 12, my grace is sufficient for you. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding and all of your ways acknowledge him. He will direct your paths. See, he's not always gonna respond immediately. He's not always gonna respond exactly when or how we wish he would, but in all things, he's always responding, even in the waiting. And then you know what? James gets done with his dissertation on prayer, and he's got one last thing to say with that pastoral heart and that pastoral care. He says, brother, and if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way saves a soul from death and covers a multitude of sins. Friends, I was that one who had wandered away. I mentioned my mom. Guess what? I'm convinced my mom prayed me back to Jesus. For some of you today, you're that one. You've wandered away. And the most important prayer you will ever pray is that prayer of repentance of sin that restores you to God again. I'm gonna pray, and then I'm gonna get down off this platform. I'm gonna come here with our prayer team, and as others are going that way, I want you to come this way. If you need ministry, if you need prayer, most of all, if you know you need Jesus, come see me immediately. Jesus, I pray for every person here that your grace and face would shine upon each one, that God, you would hear those prayers, and that Lord God in heaven, you would Remind them how much you care, that your grace is all sufficient for them in whatever they face in whatever season. And I pray especially for that one right now that's wandered away, that today would be the day they come back to the Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Pastor Phil. There is power in prayer, isn't there?
Speaking of prayer, we have our prayer team down here. And if you want us to pray with you, pray for you, you come down. While others are leaving and going home, you come down. We want to pray for you. Also, don't forget the story room wall. We want to meet you and hear your story. Y'all have a great day. Thank you for being here.